Welcome to the Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. Well, once again, Donald Trump has been indicted. And once again, the people that oppose him are wishing for his head on a platter. And the people who defend him say he's being persecuted. Here to sort it all out is a law professor, a law professor at George Mason University. He's also the B. Kemeth Sineth Chair in Constitutional Constitutional Studies. Jeez, what happened to my tongue today? In Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, and he's a former co-editor of the Supreme Court Economic Review. Professor Ilya Soman, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. So, what are the facts of the case in this particular indictment? So there's a whole bunch of facts and there's many pages of them in the indictment. And I think more will come out at the trial if there is a trial, which I think there will be. Uh, but the basic facts are these. Uh, Donald Trump lost the election. He actually lost it by a fairly substantial margin. But obviously, he and his hardcore supporters were extremely unhappy about that. They tried to uh, file lawsuits to challenge the election results, which they had every right to do. Uh, but those lawsuits were with, with minor exceptions were utterly lacking in merit. So they failed and did not turn uh, any substantial number of votes. They did win one out of about 60 lawsuits, but that lawsuit didn't even change the outcome uh, in Pennsylvania, the state it was filed in, much less the other states. So having found themselves unable to change the results by legal means or simply by speaking out against them and criticizing them, uh, he and some of his uh, allies decided to take illegal steps, such as, for instance, uh, ginning up slates of fake electors uh, to replace the real electors that had been certified by state legislatures, and also pressuring uh, Vice President Pence to negate and uh, the counting of the electoral votes by Congress on January the 6th, uh, and a number of other types of steps as well, but the fake electors uh, and pressuring Pence were the big ones. Uh, there was also trying to pressure state officials in Georgia, Arizona, and elsewhere, the closely uh, contested states to try to illegally, uh, you know, throw out legitimate votes and gin up things so that uh, uh, Trump would end up winning. Uh, and uh, these activities, which went well beyond simply speaking out against the result, the election result, or going to court, both of which things Trump had every legal right to do. He had every legal right to say whatever he wanted about the election results, and, and also had a right to try to go to court and you know, uh, make challenges as the law allows. What he did not have a right to do uh, was gene up, gene up fraudulent schemes with fake electors, pressure government officials to try to uh, come up with fraudulent election results, and also try to coerce Mike Pence uh, into doing something which Pence quite rightly recognized he did not have the authority to do. Uh, and these other activities are what have led to the charges that were filed uh, a few days ago by the special counsel Jack Smith, uh, which essentially involve four counts, uh, which involve uh, things like trying to obstruct an official proceeding of the U.S. government, in this case, the certification and counting of the electoral votes, uh, then also defrauding the United States. And then finally, under a Reconstruction Era statute, 18 U.S.C. Uh, 371, uh, which uh, punishes people who uh, try to impede the uh, counting of votes uh, and also interfere with people's rights to vote and the like. Uh, and this set of activities uh, has led to charges under those 
uh, three statutes, uh, a total of four uh, different counts, and it is very likely uh, that the case will go to trial next year, uh, though before that there will be other kinds of legal maneuvering. So I noticed that when I read the indictment, it might have been the first thing, if not, it was real close to the first thing that the indictment said was he, just what you said. He had the right to speak on any, you know, any of these topics he wanted. He could sue. I mean, they really went overboard. I'm not saying overboard as far as excessive. I mean, they really went out of their way to demonstrate that this was not simply a matter of free speech. That had to be intentional, right? Like they really yeah. had to try to make it clear that that's not what he's being indicted for. Yes. So the special counsel isn't stupid. He and his staff could foresee that Trump's defenders, many of them would react by saying, well, Trump is just being uh, punished for his political speech. Uh, and therefore, in the indictment, they're careful to distinguish between merely saying the election was stolen from him and hatching schemes to try to fraudulently overturn the results. Uh, to give you an analogy, uh, if I say uh, that you stole my car, uh, you know, that's probably protected speech, though perhaps you could charge me with libel or something. But if I then say that, not only say that a car that you have belongs to me, but then actually hatch a scheme uh, to break into your garage and steal the car, uh, then even though that latter scheme does involve speech, uh, I might talk to my co-conspirators about when we're going to break in and how we're going to do it and things of that sort. And I might couple that planning with continuing to talk about uh, how Mr. Leibowitz stole my car and the car in his garage is really mine, uh, then that would be conspiracy to commit grand theft auto or whatever that crime is referred to in a particular state, even though merely saying that you're a thief and that you stole my car, uh, that would not in of itself justify criminal charges and could well be just an exercise of my First Amendment rights. And I think we have a similar story here. Uh, if Trump had limited himself to saying the election was stolen and defiling lawsuits in a legitimate way, though some of the lawsuits also involved what turns out to be fraudulent activity by the lawyers, and some of the lawyers have been disciplined for that. But setting that point aside, doing those things would have been perfectly legal, albeit I think in some cases unethical and morally reprehensible. Uh, but Trump went well beyond that. Uh, and, you know, obviously, in some cases, he might have defenses that he can put up other than just claiming that it's First Amendment speech. And we might talk about some of them. And maybe new evidence will come out at trial that makes Trump's side of the case look better. That's one of the reasons why we hold trials, so that the defense could put out uh, evidence in a more careful and systematic way than they can in the court of public opinion. Uh, but at least for the moment, the evidence looks strong uh, that this went way beyond speech, that Trump knew he lost the election, but nonetheless chose to try to engage in various kinds of fraud uh, and illegal activity to uh, try to change it, similar to how a person who conspires to steal back, quote unquote, a card that isn't really his, has gone much further than merely a person who says, you know, you know, such and such, you know, the car in such and such as garage really belongs to me. Uh, and, you know, that person is a thief. So there's four counts to this indictment. Are they, are all of them strong? Are some stronger than others? What, what, like, what exactly is he being charged? So, so that's a good question. There are four counts that come under three different statutes. Uh, I mentioned uh, some of them already. One has to do with obstructing an official proceeding. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, that I think has to do with the effort to try to pressure Mike Pence into refusing to certify the votes, even though it was illegal for Pence to do that. A second has to do with defrauding the United States. Uh, and uh, that uh, has to do with schemes for fake electors and also uh, to try to pressure state officials to alter vote counts with the idea of uh, defrauding the United States with respect to the proper electoral count. And finally, there is the count under uh, 18 U.S.C. Section 371, uh, which is about a Reconstruction Era statute, which uh, prevents people from, uh, bars people from interfering with the right to vote and also with the conduct of federal elections. Uh, and uh, that one also arises from you know, the same patterns of activity. So really what you have is four different counts that for the most part are all about the same activities, which is essentially attempting to falsify the vote count, attempting to create, to substitute fake electors for the real ones. And it's worth noting that these fake electors in most cases, they weren't even the people that the uh, Republican party had put up as Trump's official lectures should Trump have been properly certified. These were essentially more or less random Trump supporters that were willing to participate in that scheme. So they weren't even the official Trump electors. They were just, you know, it's as if you and I said, you know, we're the real electors uh, and the ones that the state, yeah. that our state put up are fake. Uh, in reality, of course, we would be uh, fake electors. Uh, and then finally, uh, pressuring Pence comes up, I think, in at least two or three of these counts. Uh, so even though you have four different uh, counts, they arise mostly from the same pattern of activities, uh, which have just sort of gone over, uh, you know, the big things, uh, the, the fake electors scheme, pressuring state officials to try to alter vote counts illegally, and pressuring Mike Pence uh, to try to uh, um, reject the electoral vote count, even though, as Pence correctly recognized after consulting with his lawyers and others, uh, Pence did not actually have the authority to do that. So you said that, I just want to clarify something for the audience. You said that the, the electors that Trump tried to falsify weren't even his chosen yeah. electors. So what you mean by that is that when there's an election, each party puts together a slate of electors and yeah. whoever wins their electors go and vote yeah, for them. At that's the right. Technically, when I know this sounds a little bit ridiculous, but technically, when we vote in the presidential election, we're not voting for Joe Biden or Donald Trump or some other candidate. We're voting for the people who are designated as electors by their respective parties. Uh, and then it, I live in the state of Virginia, for example, if the Democratic uh, electoral slate gets the most votes in Virginia, then that means the Democratic electors are chosen, and then the Democratic electors will cast their ballot for the Democratic candidate. But technically, I voted for the electors rather than for Biden or Trump. And therefore, before the election, each party, the Democrats, Republicans, some minor parties as well, they designate a particular set of people as the electors for their candidate, should their candidate win the popular vote in the state. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, both Trump and Biden had electors designated advance, but as I understand it, all or most 
of the fake electors that Trump and his uh, uh, co-conspirators found after the election. These were not actually the Trump electors that had been designated before. These were just sort of more or less random Trump supporters who were persuaded to participate in this scheme. Even had they been the original Trump electors, it still, I think, would have been fraud because those Trump electors, although they were, you can say they were candidates for the post of elector, they didn't actually win. Uh, that position because the you know the vote in those states actually went against them. Uh, but it's even more ridiculous when you have people who were not even part of the uh, previous officially designated Trump slate of electors. They're just you know it's not much different than if he had if he had recruited you and me to say we're the real electors uh, um, uh, and you know not whoever you know was actually uh, prevailed in our states. Uh, you know it's the same kind of a thing. I assume you were not, in fact, on any electoral suede. If you were, I apologize, but you get my point. <laughs> no, I was never. No, no, no one ever asked me to do such a thing, nor would I want to. Sure. <laughs> so so one of the defenses that, that I've heard that seems absolutely ridiculous to me, Trump's lawyer says, well, you know, and I understand, look, it's his lawyer. He's got to say something. He can't go out there and say, yeah, my client's guilty. But he says, my client was just asking people to do things. He has every right to do it now. <laughs> I went to prison for asking somebody to do something. You can't run around asking people to commit criminal acts or to commit assaults or acts of violence or, or thefts. That's called conspiracy. The fact that you put it in, in a question, it doesn't mean anything. I'm correct about that, right? So all of language, and you learn this as a lawyer, but also if you study a foreign language, like language has to be interpreted in context. Uh, so, uh, in some contexts, when you ask a question, you really are trying to just find out what's the answer to something. Like, you know, if if I want to find out, like, you know, where is a particular moving showing tonight? That's a question I'm trying to find out some information. In other contexts, uh, a question really means I'm expressing a plan or giving somebody an order, even though grammatically it's put in the form of a question. When a mafia boss asks one of his underlings to go whack somebody, that usually means he genuinely wants that person killed. <laughs> even if he says, well, you know, Joe, can you go over there and whack that guy? He doesn't really mean to ask a question whether that underling has the technical ability to do it. He wants him to actually go do it. So here, at least at a certain point, Trump went beyond asking questions. He and uh, his friends and co-conspirators really did want to substitute fake electors for the real ones. They really were trying to pressure Pence uh, and so on. And I think the evidence suggests that in context, even if some of the statements were made in the grammatical form of questions, they weren't just sort of asking questions. They weren't asking, well, is it theoretically possible that Mike Pence could do this? They were saying, like, you know, he should do it. And uh, he was, Trump and others were trying to pressure Pence into that. There is a separate set of issues about did Trump have the requisite criminal intent? There is an argument, you know, that if he genuinely thought that he won the election and he genuinely thought none of this was criminal activity, maybe he could get off, then, you know, that's something we could discuss. But whether the statement was in the grammatical form of a question, that doesn't strike me as much of a defense. Uh, you know, the jury in this case will have the obligation to try to 
understand what really happened and interpret uh, these statements in context. To my mind, in context, given the situation, given what was going on, this is more like the mafia boss saying, you know, Joe, can you please go whack that guy than me asking, you know, when is that movie showing? Or is it theoretically right. possible that you and I might go to a movie or something like that? Uh, um, uh, but, you know, obviously, you know, with, with, with any given particular statement, uh, that can be evidence that can be tested in court and the jury will ultimately have to decide, you know, how should this be interpreted? You actually anticipated my next question, sure. which has to do with the intent thing. So th there's two components to this, as far as I can see, there might be more, but one is you, it, you, it's very difficult. Well, it's impossible to get inside somebody's mind to know exactly what they intend. We have to infer intent based on their conduct, based on what the, the statements they make. And in this case, there was an abundance of Trump advisors telling him, you lost this election. So his advisors are telling him that. You, we also have the case where he is reported to have told Mike Pence, you're too honest, intimating that he knew he lost. So it seems to me that there, at least there's a strong case to be made that he knew he lost. But the other part to this seems to me is that even if he know, even if he believes that he won or he believes it was fixed, that still doesn't give him the right to break the law. Right. He he still can't bully the guy in Georgia, for instance. I, that's not part of the indictment as far as I know, but he can't bully that guy to find more votes. He can't try to slate fraudulent electors. Even if he believes it, he's still responsible for uh, obeying the law. So on those two points, on, on my argument that he intent can be inferred from him or knowledge that he lost can be inferred and the breaking of the law part. What, what's the uh, what status of those positions? Yeah, so those, those are good questions. I think they're, they're coming down to a number of different issues. Let's try to break them down. First, uh, there is the issue of did Trump know he lost the election? Uh, obviously, publicly, his position was he didn't lose, it was stolen from him and so forth. But there is a lot of evidence of various private statements uh, suggesting that Trump in private actually did know. Uh, you mentioned one of them when he was uh, saying that Pence was too honest. There is also evidence from Cassidy Hutchinson, his former aide, who testified that uh, he had said that we don't want anybody to know that we lost. Uh, you know, it would be embarrassing if people knew that we lost. And obviously that implies he did know. Uh, William Barr, his attorney general at the time, who discussed uh, these issues extensively with Trump. William Barr has publicly said that he believes Trump knew. Barr, I think, could well be a witness at the trial. And there's other evidence like that as well. And as you say, uh, his advisors uh, and other top lawyers in official administration repeatedly told him that he had lost and went over evidence to, uh, with him to the effect that he lost these states by far more votes than could be accounted for by fraud or any other kind of irregularity. In any election with 160, 170 million votes, there are some irregularities, there are some cases of fraud. The key question is whether anywhere near enough to change the outcome in any of these states, much less in three or four states as he would have needed. And the answer is, you know, there was zero chance of that. So there is strong evidence that he did know, albeit obviously that evidence would have to be tested in court. He might be able to question it, his lawyers and so forth. The second question is, do we really need proof that he uh, didn't know uh, or that, that he did know, uh, you know, maybe he's guilty 
even if he genuinely thought he won the election and that he had been, he genuinely thought that he was unfairly or legally treated. And I think that, you know, that question is more uh, debatable uh, because uh, these three statutes all either require the uh, uh, the use of fraud or a corrupt state of mind or the like. So you can say, well, how can I be engaging in fraud if I thought everything I was doing was on the up and up? Uh, and I think uh, that's a non-frivolous argument, assuming Trump can also show that he really uh, didn't know uh, that he had lost. But I think that argument still has flaws. Uh, one is that even if he genuinely believed he won the election, uh, he also had no reason to think that the fake electors that he was trying to insinuate were actually real electors. Even if I genuinely believe that the car you have in my garage, in your garage belongs to me, uh, still that doesn't mean I have the right to break in and take it back. I have to use only legal means to try to repossess it. Uh, similarly, uh, even if he genuinely believed that the election was stolen from him, it doesn't follow that he had any genuine belief that Mike Pence had the authority to overturn the electoral vote count. Indeed, some statements suggest that he himself recognized that. So uh, there is that prominent argument. There is a second problem that when you talk about fraud, it may be the case uh, that even if at some level you thought that what you was doing was legitimate, there can still be fraud if you reach that conclusion in a reckless or indefensible way. Like uh, if I sell snake oil to people and lots of evidence was presented to me that it was snake oil, but I chose to find a quack that told me that really this is the cure for cancer or something. And I believed the quack and rejected all this other overwhelming evidence and still started selling the snake oil as a cure for cancer. To my mind, there's a pretty good argument to be made that I still committed uh, fraud. Uh, and same here, where he was presented with overwhelming legitimate evidence indicated he had lost, or at least there was nowhere near enough irregularities to uh, overturn the official vote counts in these states. And what he essentially did was he sought out some quacks, Giuliani, John Eastman, a few others who told him stuff that he wanted to hear. And to my mind, that's very different from sort of a legitimate mistake when you have a genuinely complicated situation that a reasonable person could screw up on. Uh, and therefore, uh, maybe uh, he, you know, he still is, is guilty on these charges even if he genuinely believed that he had lost. But so, but again, I think the evidence strongly shows that he in fact was lying about that and that he did realize that he had lost. And I also think there are certain charges, some of these charges, those relating to the fake electors and also those uh, relating to the pressuring of Mike Pence, where he engaged in illegal activity and knew that he had done so, even if he simultaneously also believed uh, that the election uh, had gone the wrong way. Uh, to give you a, uh, a historical example, I suspect to this day, Al Gore genuinely believes that he won Florida in 2000 and that the Supreme Court's decision uh, cutting short his efforts at recounts was, was legally wrong. Still, if Al Gore at that time had put forward a, a, a slate of fake electors to try to replace the Florida electors, or if he, in his capacity as vice president at the time, presiding over the electoral vote count, if he had said, you know, I reject the Florida electors in favor of Bush, 
uh, you know, that would, I think, have been criminal activity on Al Gore's part, whereas merely criticizing the Supreme Court decision or merely saying that he had been unfairly treated, you know, Gore had the right to do that. Um, and, you know, that would have been a different situation. So if you think it would have been illegal for Gore to put in a slate of fake electors at that time, even though he believed and likely to this day believes that he actually won uh, the state of Florida in 2000 and therefore the entire presidential election, then I think the same point applies to Trump, especially since the Florida situation where it really did come down to just a few hundred votes in one state. Uh, I think Gore actually lost there, uh, but uh, it was it was very close, and the issue was debatable in a way, frankly, that it was not in this past election, where we're talking about tens of thousands of votes uh, spread across uh, four or five states. So, does Trump have any, in in your mind, any legitimate defenses? Um, I suppose it depends on how you define legitimate. At least on the current state of the evidence. I don't think he has any defenses which deserve to prevail, but there are some arguments that are more reasonable than others. Uh, and obviously there could be new evidence that comes out before the jury uh, that, you know, that we don't fully know all the evidence that the two sides can present. In this case, we know a lot of things because this is one of the most explored and analyzed episodes in modern American history already. Uh, but we don't know everything. So I would say, I said before, you know, there is a plausible argument in some counts that maybe you need to show uh, that he believed he, uh, he genuinely uh, didn't believe that he uh, won the election. Uh, and maybe he could raise reasonable doubt about that. And with some of the counts also, there, there can be a debate about whether, uh, you know, about whether, he, he needed to know that he lost in order for that count to hold against him. Uh, perhaps there could be procedural issues that are raised at trial. You could make an argument that there should be a change of venue and that he can't get a fair trial in Washington, D.C., where the population is overwhelmingly Democratic. Uh, you know, he will make a motion on that and the judge uh, you know, we'll have to rule on that. So I think on the currently available evidence, I believe he deserves to be convicted on each of these counts. However, we don't know every bit of evidence out there. Uh, and we don't know every single technical legal argument that can be raised either. Uh, so uh, I think there he has, he probably has some reasonable arguments on some points, as well as a lot of ridiculous and stupid arguments as well that we've seen bandied about in the media. Uh, and therefore, you know, part of the legal process is that, you know, people have the opportunity to raise those arguments. Are you familiar with any of the posts that he's been making on social media yeah. over the last few days? Yeah, so those <laughs> posts have not been helping his cause too much, at least legally. We'll see if they help him politically or not. But, you know, he did have that post where he says, if you come after me, I'll come after you. The judge, uh, after that, warned him against uh, you know, doing, saying and doing things that could be construed as threatening the jurors if they uh, uh, decide against him or threatening witnesses who might testify. And uh, he so far does not seem to be chastened. I would add that, you know, people have said, well, Trump is being treated worse uh, than the average defendant. The truth is so far, actually, he's been treated much better. If you had an ordinary person, you or me, who was under indictment, for what is now 40 something counts of different federal crimes. Uh, and 
uh, if he had intimated in any way, anything that, you know, might be construed as intimidating, that person would probably be in pretrial custody. At the very least, bail would be imposed. Trump is out on his own recognizance. No bail has been imposed. Uh, and, uh, you know, and he's still, you know, going about his ordinary life. Uh, and as, as we discussed in our previous podcast, with an ordinary person, I think they would not have spent many months uh, conducting investigation. He, that the ordinary person would have been charged much earlier uh, with both this case and the classified documents case, where you know the the evidence even more overwhelming than than in this case. Uh, so so far, Trump is actually being treated relatively lenient. We you could argue maybe that's justified because of his status as a former president, or maybe you can say he's not much of a flight risk because the Secret Service is constantly with him in a way that it would not be with you or me if you or I were. You know, we're under indictment, uh, but it's nonetheless notable that, you know, he has been engaging in activity that probably would not be permitted to an ordinary person. Uh, uh, that said, I'm generally skeptical about pretrial detention. I think we use it too much. So I'm not going to say, well, you know, we should detain him. I think to the contrary, we probably should use pretrial detention less often for ordinary people. But nonetheless, he is being treated uh, in these respects better than sort of the ordinary person would be if they were in the same place. Could he be and should he be charged for making what amount to threats? I mean, I know they're on social media and I know some people say, oh, that's just Trump being Trump. But it seems to me that's a threat. You come after me, I'm coming after you. Yeah. So it's a good question. I'm not sure I really know the answer because the, the problem is that remark can be construed in a number of different ways. We've talked about context. Yeah. Uh, it could be construed as I will instigate violence by my supporters against you if you come after me by testifying and the like. But it could be construed as merely why would just say mean things about you or something like that. Um, uh, so it, you know, it's it's debatable. Uh, and, and obviously, to charge somebody with a crime, you would have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, I do think, as I mentioned before, uh, that a uh, an ordinary criminal defendant who engaged in similar activity, it is likely they would be subject to pretrial detention upon doing it or to other types of constraints, which require less than proof beyond a, re a reasonable doubt. Uh, but I think a case for threatening witnesses or threatening prosecutors like, I'm not at this point convinced it could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt based on that social media. However, I emphasize this is an area of law that I don't have much expertise in on the relevant precedents and rules. So I could be wrong about that. So going forward, what do you think? I, I want you to put your prognosticator hat on here. What do you think the ramifications are of this whole Trump saga, all the indictments and everything? For the law, the future of the presidency, the future of the country, uh, like how do you see this turning out? I think it's too early to really say. I think it is very likely, it's not certain, but it's very likely that Trump will be convicted on at least some of these charges. Uh, and that conviction may well happen, it's not certain, but it may well happen before the presidential election. Uh, if the, he is still the GOP nominee, which at this point the polls suggest is likely that he will be, and they suggest also it's likely that he will be even if he gets convicted, especially since the conviction probably won't happen until the Republican nomination process is over or nearly over. Uh, so there is an issue of what effect will that have on voters in the general election? 
uh, or in Republican primaries for that matter, and we don't know for sure. I think it is likely that this would hurt him at least in a general election. It may only cost him a few points, but a few points uh, could well be important sure. if the election is close, which current polling suggests that it may be, because while uh, Donald Trump is very unpopular, so too is Joe Biden. So those few points might matter. Uh, I think if he is convicted on charges related to January 6th, uh, um, and the attempt to overturn the election. Uh, there will also be the question of whether he should be disqualified from running for the presidency under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies people who engaged in or aided in insurrection against the United States. Uh, this was intended to deal with ex-Confederates after the Civil War, but obviously it is arguable, at least, that it applies to Trump's situation. There are also arguments that it doesn't, and we could talk about that, or you can get an expert who actually knows more about Section 3 than I do. But I think that issue would arise uh, from convictions out of the case dealing with overturning the election, whereas I don't think it would be an issue if he's just convicted for the classified documents case or for that somewhat lame case in New York from the payoff to his mistress. Uh, you know, no, none of those cases raise the issue of insurrection, but this one at least uh, plausibly does. Uh, I also think it would be very bad if Trump were elected president again, despite uh, um, you know, having engaged in these activities, even more so despite being convicted, that would be very bad. It would mean the political system and the electorate uh, is an even worse situation, has even worse judgment than I, an author of a book about political ignorance, had thought it would. My hope is it will not come to that, but obviously there will be all sorts of ramifications from this going forward. It's hard to predict them. I will make one last point about this, and that is uh, that setting aside the technical legal issues, which are important, obviously the courts and the jury will have to look at those, but there is a broader issue here, and that is uh, we should ask, why do we try and punish people in the first place? And one possible answer, well, it's just because they violated the law. But all the time we let people get away with violations of law and we think it's okay to do so. You and I have probably driven a, a faster in the speed limit in our lives. We may have made mistakes in our tax returns and so forth. And all the time, most Americans say it's legitimate not to go after everybody who has done it. Um, the majority of Americans have used marijuana in violation of federal law at some point in their lives. I bet you and I probably agree we should not go after those tens of millions of people and put them all in prison. However, in some cases, it is necessary to prosecute and punish people for reasons of retribution and deterrence. Retribution, because what they did was so horrible and evil that it demands punishment that they deserve. Deterrence, because we want to prevent people in the future from engaging in the same kind of misconduct. And when you think about what kinds of activity could a president or other high official engage in that demands retribution and deterrence, trying to use fraud and force to stay in power after you lose an election, that has to be very high up on the list. Uh, I would add, you can say, well, in general, presidents and other politicians, we have political accountability for them, but this was actually an attempt to short circuit the means of political accountability, right? Trump was president for one term, the majority of the electorate and the electoral vote, they were not happy with his performance, I had to get rid of him, uh, and yet he tried to use force and fraud to prevent that accountability. Actually, there are also other cases where presidents deserve more criminal or civil punishment, and I think uh, you know we've been too lenient with uh, uh, with presidents in our history at various times. Uh, but 
uh, a situation where the president actually short circuits the political accountability that is supposed to keep him in check and his criminal conspiracy was all about that. That presents a very important case for retribution and also for deterrence because the next time a president thinks, well, what if I can stay in power after losing a close election, he should uh, think about, well, look what happened to Trump. I don't want to end up in prison like him. Whereas if on the other hand, Trump gets away with it, uh, then the next guy could say, well, why can't I? Like Trump got away with it. You know, I should be able to as well. Uh, so I think uh, from that point of view, there are deeper issues here than just sort of the details of whether Trump violated a particular statute or not. There is a broader issue of whether this is the kind of conduct that we as a republic should allow to go unpunished. And I think the answer to that question has to be no, even though I totally recognize that there are many situations where you know people may violate a law, but there are good reasons not to go after them. The law is unjust. Their punish their violation it was too petty or insignificant to be worth bothering with, and so on. Like you know, when I go over, I think speed limits aren't necessary, but when the average person goes three miles over the speed limit, there's good reason not to punish them. In most cases, uh, this is a very different kind of situation from that. Thank you. So, Professor Solman, where can people find you? Sure. Uh, so they can Google me and my website, uh, and we can find a lot of my writings there. I also blog regularly at the Volok Conspiracy blog hosted by Reason. Uh, Volok is spelled V-O-L-O-K-H. Uh, and uh, at my website, I also have links to a lot of my other writings in various popular and academic media. Finally, you can look up my website at the Cato Institute, uh, their website, and there they have paywall free links to many of my writings in popular media, which otherwise uh, are paywalled. And there it's perfectly legal. The, the New York Times, Washington Post, and others have given Cato permission to uh, reprint the stuff there. Excellent. Thanks again. For now, this is the Rational Egoist, Michael Leibowitz. I'm signing out. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Till next time.